Well, good morning. It is good to be able to gather with you again this morning on this second Sunday of the Advent season as we prepare for the coming of our Savior. So if you're visiting or you're new, uh, my name is Tim. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, yeah, we're glad you're here joining us, whether you're here in person or whether you're, you're online. We're just glad that you're joining us here um, this morning. A couple of couple of announcements. This Friday, the 11th, um, we will have a, a movie and pizza night here at the church. Um, so there'll be two movies, one um, starting at 4 p.m., kind of more kid-centric, then there'll be an intermission with pizza, and then another movie um, following the pizza. And then also, uh, the coming Saturday, we'll have a men's breakfast at 7.30 a.m. that we'd love to have you Join us for that'll be downstairs as well. And finally, um, over in the library, there's a video camera set up. So after the service, if you want to record just a Christmas greeting um, for the members of our church, we will record those. We'll post them on Facebook. We'll play them after the service in a couple of weeks, just as a way to kind of help each other see each other's faces and just stay connected and in various ways kind of throughout this season. So, again, after the service, you want to record a message over in the library. We would love to have you recorded and share your message with our church family. Right, so, yeah, it's just it's good to be with you this morning as we, again, prepare our hearts and we get to come and worship as we look forward to the coming, celebrating the coming of our Savior. Would you all stand with us as we begin to worship this morning?
Um, so this would normally be the time that we would pass around an offering plate, but we don't do that anymore. But um, we want to remind you, if you want to give, there are multiple ways that you can give, and we want to thank you for all of those who are. You can give online um, at our website. There's also a text option, which also is on our website, or you can send a check to the church office. Or in the back, there are um, bowls back there that you can give as well. Would you pray with me? Dear Father God, we we thank you that over 2,000 years ago, your kingdom did come down. That you sent your son as a baby in a manger, not in a palace or, a, or anywhere comfortable, but, but 
you sent him into our messy world, into our messy lives. And he eventually grew to be a man and died on a cross for us and rose again so that we, we could sing praises about your kingdom coming. So we thank you for that, Lord. We thank you for this community, for this church in this place, Lord. We ask that you would help us to be effective. You would help us um, to love our neighbors well this Christmas season, that we would proclaim your name well, um, that as we look at Christmas, we wouldn't just think of presents and Santa and all the good food, but we would look to you coming to this earth. We ask your blessing on the rest of our time together, Lord. Help us to worship you well. We pray for Pastor Tim as he brings um, your word, Lord. And we just thank you so much for all of the blessings that you give us, Lord. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You stand with us as we continue in worship.
Today marks the second Sunday of Advent, the season in which we prepare our hearts and minds for the birth of Jesus and remember the longings of the Jews for a Messiah. In Advent, we are reminded of how much we ourselves need our sa- need a Savior, and we look forward to our Savior's second coming even as we prepare to celebrate his first coming at Christmas. In Isaiah 9, we read, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. These verses remind us that the Savior is the Prince of Peace. Today we light the second candor, second Advent candor, the candle of peace. May it point each of us to the Savior who makes peace with God possible for each of us and who will one day rule over the new heavens and the new earth as it experiences perfect peace. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the Savior who makes peace with you possible. Help us to look forward with hope to the day when he will return and we will experience perfect peace forever.
you did send Jesus once that he came as a baby, lived a life on this earth, a sinless life that we could be forgiven of our sins and we now look forward to the day when he comes again and we pray that as we walk through this Advent season, as we approach the celebration of the birth of your son, that we would be amazed once again by what a great God you are, what a great Savior Jesus is, and what a great gift you've given us by sending Jesus. Let that truth really reign in our hearts. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So Ulysses S. Grant is he's well known today as he's the commander for commanding the Union Army during the Civil War and also as the 18th president of the United States. And it struck me as I was starting this that maybe it was not the best choice on my part to have an introduction about an army general on Peace Sunday, but here we are. Right? So Ulysses S. Grant, he's the commander of the Union Army during the Civil War and the 18th president, but before any of those things, a grand career got cut off to a kind of an, an inauspicious start. Right? He, he somewhat reluctantly attended West Point after his father kind of pulled strings to get him in, but he didn't really want to go. And then while he was there, while he was at West Point, he really did nothing to distinguish himself. He finished 21st in a class of 39. So his plan was to like serve his mandatory four years at, in the army after he graduated and then like get out and go find something else to do. But then the Mexican-American War breaks out and he, he serves commendably but unspectacularly. And then finally following those wars, he gets assigned to a post out in California during the gold rush. Now granted this time, he has a young family, newly married, he's got a young family, he's got a young kid, but like California during that time was no place to raise a young family. Right? So his wife and his kid stay behind. And separated from family, separated from living with people he loves, like he's living on this remote and desolate army post, and it's not a great experience for Grant. He makes some bad business decisions, and eventually he starts drinking heavily. And eventually, a Grant's commanding officer tells him, like, you must reform your drinking ways or resign. And so Grant vows to reform, but then days later, he's found intoxicated again, and he's forced to resign. And so he returns to his young family, having lost most of their money with these bad business decisions, and he has no real civilian occupation to go back to. And for the next seven years, the Grant family struggles financially. Grant tried and like mostly failed to make a living as a farmer. At one point, he was so hard-pressed that he had to resort to selling firewood that he cut off his land like on street corners in St. Louis to try to make ends meet. It's, like, it's a hard seven-year stretch for the Grant family. But then, as the Civil War breaks out, and the Union suddenly in need of troops and officers, and so Grant then has a decision to make. He can allow his past struggles and his past 
failures, to make him bitter. He could have been like, I'm not going back to the military. He did all these things to me. There's no way I'm going back, no matter what. And he could have just continued on with his hard scrabble existence. Or he could let his past experiences make him better. He could accept this new commission as a colonel that was offered to him. He could learn from his past mistakes and he could like, commit himself to being the best military man he could be. And of course, the fact that we know who he is tells us that he chose the latter. And like he used all that knowledge and experience from his past failures and he quickly rose up to the military ranks until like on March 7th, March 2nd, 1864, less than three years removed from like his life as an impoverished ex-military man, Grant was promoted to lieutenant general over all Union troops. Like the only person before him who had achieved a rank that high was George Washington. Like Grant, went, Grant went through this long period of trial. Trials that would have driven many men to hopelessness and despair. Like it would have been so easy for him to blame the unfortunate circumstances or bad luck for his situation. He could have gotten bitter and despondent and just given up. But he didn't do that. Like he used this time of trial to make him to make him better. So that when the next opportunity came along, like he was ready. Like Grant didn't waste his trial. He owned his past mistakes. And he prepared himself to be better when the next opportunity came. And in Luke, we see Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, go through something somewhat similar, if somewhat more supernatural. He goes through a period of trial and difficulty as a result of past failures. And when he gets a second chance, he shows that he's allowed that period of trial to make him better. Zechariah didn't waste his trials either. And through this story, we see a number of ways that he makes sure that his trials don't go to waste. So with that in mind, we're going to look at this passage. We're going to look at Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 57. And we're going to just kind of read through the passage. And as we read through, I'm going to make a couple of comments. And at the end, we'll come back and look at more detail at different ways, different things this passage teaches us about handling the trials in our lives. So Luke chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 57, where we read, When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and her relatives heard that the Lord has shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. So one of the things that I'm still like adjusting to living here, having come from like the Twin Cities, like so making that shift from a big urban center to living in a smaller town, like one of the things I'm still... like. Adjusting to it, the lack of anonymity. Like, like it's a little startling. Like when, like, it's happened a few times. Like, I'm in town, I'm meeting someone for what I think is the first time, and they say, like, oh, you're the new pastor of the free church, right? Like, they don't even go here. Like, they just, but they know who I am. Like, it's a little, like, startling. And it just, like, it comes with living in a small town. And that's what Elizabeth is experiencing here. Like she gives birth to a baby, like, and the whole town shows up, right, along with her extended family. But not only do they show up, look at verse 59. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. Now, let's be clear, the they 
who are going to name him, right, is, are the neighbors and the family. Right? They've, like, they've like, taken it on themselves to name this child. Right? Now, I'm, I'm sure many of you think you have overbearing neighbors or overbearing family. Right? But unless they've tried to name your kid, they, they, you've got nothing on Elizabeth. Right? Like, these relatives and neighbors, they just take it upon themselves. They're going to decide this baby's name is Zechariah. They don't even ask Elizabeth. Like verse 60 tells us, like Elizabeth has to like interrupt their conversation to be like, ah, can I have a say in naming my kid, please? At the verse 50 or verse 60, Elizabeth says, but his mother spoke up and said, no, he is to be called John. Right? Now you would think, like Elizabeth kind of buds into the conversation, you would think like those people will gather and be like, maybe they'd be a little apologetic. Like, oh, like, sorry, Elizabeth, like, we got a little carried away with excitement at your baby, but of course, like, it's your baby, it's up to you and Zechariah. But they don't do that. Verse 61, they said to her, like, like there is no one among your relatives who has that name. Like, they just dismiss what she's going to name her child. Like, in Romeo and Juliet, like Juliet famously says, like, what's in a name that which we call a robe by any other name would smell as sweet. Right? And of course, her, her point is, like, names don't really matter. Like, it shouldn't matter that she's a Capulet and Romy was a Montague. Like, names shouldn't matter. But the fact is, like, names do matter. And they often matter quite a bit. They matter for what they mean and for what they communicate to others. And like, when we see that in the reaction from Elizabeth's family here. Like, you're going to name him John? Like, that's not even a family name. Like, are you ashamed of your family or something? Like, that's, why, that's why the family is so upset here. Right? By not giving the child a family name, like, Elizabeth's relatives take it as a slight against the family. Like, they see it as an indication that Elizabeth is ashamed of like, who she is or where she has come from. And so the family's upset at the choice of name, and so they decide, aha, well, we're going to pull rank here, and we're going to ask Zechariah. So verse 62 says, that then they made signs to, their, to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. And like up to this point, Zechariah has been conspicuously absent in this story. Right? Like he just hasn't been there. Like, but now, like the reason's apparent. Like if you may recall, earlier in Luke, when Gabriel shows up to Zechariah in the temple and tells him he can have a son, Zechariah doesn't believe him at first. Right? Zechariah said to the angel, Luke 1.18, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. Then the angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Right. So we knew Zechariah was unable to speak, but it also appears, reading this, that he was deaf as well. Right. Otherwise, like why make signs to him? Like if he's not deaf, he can hear. You can still talk to him, even if he can't talk to you. Right. But they make signs to him. So apparently, like Zechariah is deaf as well as unable to speak. So just like 
just picture for a moment what this moment would have been like for Zechariah. On the one hand, like this miraculous son of his old age had been born eight days earlier. But he was he'd been unable to, to rejoice with his own voice or to hear his wife and family and friends rejoice with him. And like Gabriel, when he said what he said about being able to speak, it was a little unclear exactly how long Zechariah would be unable to speak. All he said was, now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens. But it's not super clear what the this that has to happen is. But probably, if I'm Zechariah, I'm hoping for the best. Right? I'm hoping like, that as soon as John is born, like bam, my voice is back. But now, we're eight days in and that hasn't happened. He still can't hear, still can't talk. And now he's like sitting in the corner, unengaged because he's deaf and he can't speak, and he like sees his neighbors and his family having this probably animated conversation with his wife. And he has no idea what it's about. And he's just like left on the sidelines. He's left out. Right? But all of a sudden, like everyone turns to him and they want his input. And like they start making signs to him. And like, I'm not sure like, how you sign. What do you want to name your baby? Like, I'm not that good at charades, but I would have a hard time with that one. Like, like, but eventually they get the point across. And so John, or Zechariah, responds in verse 63. He asked for a writing tablet, which is just like a piece of wood covered in wax. And you could write on it and then like, melt the wax back down. So he asked for a writing tablet. And to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, His name is John. So Zechariah, like he emphatically writes, his name is John. And in fact, in Greek, like John comes first for emphasis. Right? John is his name. He doesn't say, we're going to call him John. Like he doesn't say, well, we're thinking John has a nice ring to it. Like John is his name. And he's so confident in that declaration because it's the name the angel gave him. And John means that God is gracious. The baby is a sign of God's graciousness to Zechariah and Elizabeth. And that declaration, that John is his name, is what finally brings an end to God's discipline and allows Zechariah to begin to speak. We pick up in verse 64. Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue set free and he began to speak praising God. All the neighbors were filled with awe, and throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all these things. Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, what then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. So Zechariah and Elizabeth and their little son John, like they're the buzz of the town. And you can understand why. This elderly couple who had never been able to have kids, suddenly gets pregnant, has a, has a baby, but, but the father can't talk. He's deaf and he's mute. And this child is born and they give him this unexpected name. But then the act of giving that child this name like, somehow makes the father be able to speak and hear again. Like, it's an amazing story. Like, even without 
knowing John future role, even without knowing what Gabriel says about John in the temple. Like it's an amazing story. Something similar had happened here. Like the whole town here would be buzzing about it as well. And we see the same thing in this. Right? Throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all of these things. Like simply from a human interest perspective, this is a fascinating story. Like if like this happened, like this would be the leading story on the five o'clock news. But because we're so familiar with this story, like it's easy to fail to really think about what an amazing story it is, and it's easy to like not really think about what it would have been like to live through and in this story. And as I as I studied this week this term, like, I was just struck right, by what it, what it must have been like to be Zechariah throughout this whole story, like, from the time of his vision in the temple until the moment that his tongue is finally loosed. Right. And we, or at least I, like, I have this tendency with Bible characters right, to, like, picture them as, like, idealized, almost heroic figures. And so when I think about Zechariah, my default thought is to be, like, Oh, he probably just like stoically accepted this period of deafness and muteness. Like, like for nine months, he probably just sat there and was like, ah, oh, well, God's gonna do what God's gonna do, so it's fine. I'll just sit here. Right? And because like Luke's Luke's narrative is so compressed, so short, like we don't feel how long of a time it is that Zechariah would have been in this state of being unable to speak and unable to hear. Right? Like, but nine months just how long it was. It's a long time. Like for context, it's almost exactly nine months ago like that we started seeing the first widespread lockdowns and things from, from COVID. Like, like nine months ago, in the last nine months, like I've lived in three different houses in two different states. Like nine months ago, like our baby could barely roll over. And now she like tears around the house pulling stuff off Christmas trees and whatever else. Like, nine months is a long time. And, like, the nine months. And I know, like, for us, many of us, the nine months of COVID probably felt like 900. It's been a hard stretch. But, like, just imagine if you had been deaf and unable to speak for all nine of those months. Like, I know, like, COVID can feel socially isolated because we can't get together in the same ways that we had before. But, like, imagine not even being able to speak or hear your spouse or anybody else for all nine months. Like, my point is not to minimize the effects of COVID, but for us to, to maximize, like, what Zechariah would have been going through. Nine months without being able to speak or hear, like, would have been would have been hard. Right? Like God shows up and he blesses Zechariah in the temple with this amazing gift, right? this promise of having a baby. And like, Zechariah had to live with the fact that his response was not to celebrate, but to, but to doubt. And for the nine months, he felt unable to speak, unable to hear, and like that inability is a constant reminder of how he failed how he failed to trust God. And like, Zechariah, he's not a heroic Bible character. He's a human just like the rest of us. 
And he still has sin at work in him, just like the rest of us. And like if we acknowledge that, that Zechariah is a sinful man with sin still at work in him, then like there's no way he sat there for nine months without going through some dark times. If he sat like in utter silence, unable to speak, unable to talk to anyone about his feelings, unable to hear any word of encouragement, he undoubtedly would have gone through deep trials and suffering. He must have wondered, like, will I ever speak again? Why would God do this to me? What are people saying about me? Along with those thoughts, I must have been periods of like utter, pure boredom. Right? Like to sit in silence, unable to engage socially in any way for nine months must have been boring and hard. You would have been deprived of so many of the little things in life that give life joy and meaning. And even after the child is born and everyone is in his house celebrating, like people seem to forget that he exists until they need him to overrule his wife about the name of the baby. It would have been a lonely and dark and difficult nine months for Zechariah. And when we go through seasons like that, it can push us in one of two directions. A season of deep trial like that can make us bitter or it can make us better. And just like Grant used his time of trial to make him better, prepared him to lead the union of victory, like so Zechariah goes through this period of trial and it makes him better, makes him more obedient and honoring God with his life. His doubt that he expressed to Gabriel has been replaced by a deep trust in the goodness of God. Like Zechariah didn't waste his trial. And the rest of our time this morning, I want to see four things that Zechariah did to make sure he didn't waste his trial. And my hope is that we'll learn from these things so that we can use our trials well in the future. Before we get there, I want to make one thing really clear. Even as we use trials to make us better, as we use trials to draw us closer to God, that doesn't mean the trial itself is not hard. It's not that like once we see how God is using our trial then it stops being difficult. So like what I don't want you to hear me say is like oh you're going through a hard time? Oh like just suck it up and let it make you better and everything will be fine. Like that's not how it works. Like trials are hard. And like the the point of this is not to make them easier, to make them easy because that's not possible. And so like the hope, my hope, my urge is that you will not waste the hardness. If there is nothing worse than having gone through a hard time and gained nothing from it. If we go through trials and gain nothing, it only makes the hardship that much worse. But if we go through trials and it makes us better, it makes us more obedient to God, it can once have made the trial itself easier, but we won't have wasted our trial. And so in the passage we see four things Zechariah does to make sure he doesn't waste his trials. 
And we can do these same things in the midst of our trials to make sure we don't waste them as well. And so the first step in not wasting our trials is to repent. And namely, right, to repent of, of any sin that may be the cause of or contributing to our suffering. And now we need to be a little bit careful here. Right? Because in John's case, right, there's a direct, like his suffering is a direct result of personal sin. Right? His being unable to speak is the result of him doubting the promise of God. Right? He's going through the trial because it is discipline from the Lord. And God uses discipline to shape us and mold us. But that doesn't mean that every trial we go through is the result of some direct connection between some personal sin in our lives. Like, yes, on one level, all suffering, all trials, all hardships are the result of human sin generally. But in John's case, there's, there's a direct connection between his sin of doubting and his trial. Like, and that won't always be the case with us. Sometimes we suffer simply because we live in a fallen and a broken world. And so the first step as we, as we walk through trials and we walk through hardships is to examine ourselves, examine our hearts, and to ask, like, is there some sin in my life that I need to repent of? Like, could God be using this present trial to discipline me in some way? So like, if we walk through trial, like the first step is examine our hearts and like, look for sin that God could be disciplining us of. But even if our trials aren't like the direct consequence of some sin in our life, like we likely still have areas of sin that like going through a trial makes worse and we need to repent of. So for example, like, like COVID have been a trial like for many of us, right? Even if you haven't contracted the disease, it caused difficulties and trials in a in a wide variety of ways. And like COVID, I can confidently say, is not the direct result of anyone in this room's personal sin. It's just a product of living in a fallen and broken world. But COVID has also exposed idols in many of our hearts, certainly in my heart. Whether it's the idol of like financial security, or the idol of health, or the idol of like independence, like it has the ability to expose those idols. And like when we receive we see those idols and we respond with anxiety, or we respond like by not counting other more significant than ourselves, right? Like if we respond in ways that are not honoring to God because of this trial, like we need to repent. Now you may ask, like, like where do you see Zechariah in this passage repenting? Like nowhere do we see him confess. Nowhere do we see him ask for forgiveness. And like while those are important parts of the repentance process, again, Zechariah almost certainly did them. At the core of what it means to repent is to turn. To turn away from sin and to turn to God. And when Zechariah writes, John is his name, like he is showing that he's done that. He has turned away from his doubt. He is trusting God. Trusting God's promises about this child. Like he could have 
Let this period of isolation and deafness make him bitter and push him further away from God. He could have said, like, you know what? If God's going to discipline me for this, like, I want nothing to do with his plan. And I'm going to name this kid Zechariah Jr., just like everyone wants. And, like, I know it seems far-fetched because he's in the Bible, so of course he did the right thing. But, like, that's how we respond to trials a lot of times. But Zechariah didn't do that. Like he showed that he had learned from his past mistakes. That he had turned away from his doubt and he had turned to God. And the same thing is true for us. Right? Like suffering can push us further away from God. Make us bitter, make us more inclined to do our own thing, follow our own will. Our trial can expose idols or our trial can expose idols and encourage us to repent and turn to God. And like the, the exhortation of this passage is like, choose repentance. Choose to turn to God, even in the midst of trials. And relatedly, the second way that, to not waste your trials that we see in this passage is to obey. And in particular, this passage shows us that even in the midst of trials, right, we, should, we should obey God and not the culture. In this passage, Elizabeth and Zechariah are under lots of pressure to comply with cultural norms and give their son a family name. Like by not doing so, they risk offending their family. They can possibly inviting even more trial and hardship into their lives. It would have been so easy for them to rationalize away their sin. They could have just said, like, what is a name matter. Right? Certainly, God can still use our child for his purposes, even if we name him Zechariah Jr. Like, plus, giving him a family name is a way of loving our family well. Like, and God tells us to love others, so like, let's just give him a family name. That would have been so easy. Right? But that's the, that's the wicked, nefarious thing about sin. Right? Like, it's so easy to rationalize it sometimes. Like, sin is a way of making itself sound good and appealing. Like, and especially when we're going through trials, things are hard. Like, it can be so tempting to just do the thing that sounds good and easy in the moment. But even in trials, even in hardship, like we're called to continue to obey God's word and not give in a societal pressure to act contrary to God's commands. We must continue to obey God's word and not give ourselves over to our sinful desires. Even in the midst of trials, right, we must obey God. And the third way we, we don't waste our trials is to rejoice when God carries us through them. We're going to spend most of next week's sermon talking about joy and rejoicing because Zechariah sings a whole song in which he rejoices and praises God. But for now, just, just notice how Zechariah responds in verse 64. Like, immediately, like his mouth was open and his tongue set free and he began to speak, praising God. Like the very first word out of Zechariah's mouth, as soon as God lets him speak again, are words of praise. 
He didn't question God about why he did what he did. Like, he didn't dwell on what he'd been through and complain about it. Like, as soon as the trial was over, he praised God for who he is and what he had done. And so someday, COVID will end. Someday, whatever trials you're going through will end. Like now in reality, for some of us, we're going through trials that won't end until like, we're reunited with Jesus in glory. And in that case, like, when your trial ends, you won't even consider any other response but to rejoice. But for those of us who are in trials now that we will eventually be carried through, like, our response after the trial is over should not be bit, to be bitter about the fact that God let us go through it, but to rejoice in the fact that God carried us through it. And when we do that, it goes a long way towards achieving the final way that we're to not waste our trials, which is by proclaiming. When we walk through suffering and trial in a way that shows confidence in God, we can rejoice in His goodness even in the midst of suffering. And when we do that, we're saying to a watching world a lot, about, what, about the God that we believe in. The way we respond to suffering communicates something to the watching world about who the God we believe in is. You can notice what happens immediately after Zechariah's tongue is loosed and he starts rejoicing. Verse 65, All the neighbors were filled with awe, and throughout the hill country of Judea, Judea people were talking about all of these things. The way we the way we respond to trials and suffering has the ability to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus and point people to our good and gracious God. At the beginning of this service, the Hans lit the second Advent calendar candle, not calendar, the second Advent candle, and it's a candle of peace. And like ultimately our source of peace is found in the fact that we serve a great God who has good purposes for his children even in the midst of sufferings and trials. And the ultimate display of that good plan is that he sent his son as a baby to die in our place and to take away our sin and God's judgment against us so that we can have peace with God. And because we believe that, because we believe all that God did for us in Jesus, we can walk through any trial, obeying Him, rejoicing in Him. And when we're able to do that, like like Zechariah, when we're able to praise God through trials, we have the opportunity to fill our neighbors and the watching world with awe and appoint them to Jesus. And that's how, like, that's how we don't waste our trials. We let our trials work us in such a way that the way we respond tells and shows other people about Jesus. We use our trials as a means of pointing other people to our great God who can carry us through them. It's like the question I want us to leave with is this. Does the way you responded trials in your life 
does it point your neighbors and unbelievers in your life to your awesome God and your great Savior? Does your response to trials and suffering show the glories of how great God is even as you walk through them? May we be a people who point others to Jesus even in the midst of our sufferings, even in the midst of trial. May we be a people that doesn't waste our trial. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for what you've done for us in Jesus, that Jesus endured the ultimate trial, the ultimate suffering, so that we don't have to experience eternal suffering in hell, but that we can look forward to a day when all trials, all sufferings are over, all sufferings undone. We spend eternity with you in the new heavens and the new earth. God, but until that day comes, help us to walk through trials in a way that we repent of the sins they reveal in our hearts, that we obey you through them, that we rejoice that you are great and mighty enough to carry us through them, and then we use them to proclaim your greatness to a watching world. God, would you be glorified in our lives even as we walk through trials? Help us to use our trials well for your glory and to not waste them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, before we go, we have one more announcement. Or yes. Uh, Josh, our newly elected missions committee chair, has an announcement. Thanks, Ian. Um, just want to make a quick announcement. Um, traditionally, the church has gifted our missionaries with a Christmas gift of uh, money. So I wanted to just let everybody know that um, there is a, a small blurb in the sheet on the bulletin, uh, but there are envelopes on the offering table uh, if you'd like to give today. Otherwise, um, for those of you at home, you could mail a check uh, to the church, but we would like to try to get these mailed out um, you know, before Christmas. So try to get them in as soon as you can if you'd like to give. Uh, that's all. Thanks. Thanks, Josh. And as we, we depart from here, would we go, even if we go out into trial, even if we go out into suffering, that we would go proclaiming the excellencies of Jesus to the world around us. Go in peace. You're dismissed.